Highway to Safety Podcast, Episode 3. to the Highway to Safety Podcast. My name is David Wallace, the Traffic Safety Guy, and this is the podcast about traffic safety, providing you knowledge, raising your awareness, and giving you the tools to be a safer driver. On this show, I discuss traffic safety issues, give you tips and suggestions on what we can all do to be safer on the road, and bring you conversations with policymakers, traffic safety professionals, and the people who are making a difference every day of their lives to make our roads and highways safer for all of us. What do you say? Are you ready for our journey together on this highway to safety? Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Highway to Safety. I'm glad you were able to drop in. On this particular episode, I'm going to be talking with Gerald Waters, who is one of New Zealand's leading advocates on drink driving. And I think you'll find that this conversation is about change and hope and how one person can make a difference. How many times do we uh, open the newspaper and read the headlines how drunk driving or drunk driver kills pregnant woman, or turn on the TV news and hear about a teen dying in a, a crash because of alcohol. And we recognize the loss, and then we think, well, that's terrible, but what can I do? As you'll hear from Gerald, he did not seek out to, be, to become one of their leading advocates or to be such a strong proponent of strengthening and uh, changing the drink driving laws in New Zealand. I have no doubt he would rather be home with his family and taking care of his children but things happen, as things happen to all of us many times. And what's happened is he has taken and run with it, so to speak, and made a difference. And it's phenomenal what he's been able to start and keep going through his work. I really have an overall picture here of this whole topic. Back on May 11th of 2011, the United Nations uh, declared that this decade of 2011 to 2020 is a decade of action for road safety. The whole idea here is, to reverse what's been going on and save lives. This global road safety effort is a recognition that it's not just a problem here in the United States. It's not just a problem in New Zealand. It's a problem in every country around the globe. It's a problem that we all need to work on and we all need to address. Now, is global road safety just alcohol? Absolutely not. It is much more than that. It is alcohol. It is pedestrian safety. It is seatbelts. It is speed. It is car safety. It is a whole variety of topics. And that's why a comprehensive approach has to be dealt with. And that's why it's also critical that we look about what can we do ourselves. When they announced this, the Decade of Action for Road Safety, more than 100 countries celebrated that launch, and they all expressed their commitment to the goal of saving 5 million lives. That's how many people that we're looking at saving here over this decade. We know that every year, 1.24 million people are killed because of road traffic deaths. Three out of four of those people are men. And road traffic fatalities are the number one cause of death among those aged 15 to 29 years old. This is happening to something that's happening to everyone everywhere. The important thing here about this whole global road safety effort is that it's a comprehensive approach. It's a comprehensive effort to change what's going on now. 
that if we don't make a difference and work to saving lives, it's only going to get worse. And before you start to sit back and say, well, I can't change this, David. I don't have any control over there. You have control around you or you're at. You have control in your home. And that's what I hope that you can hear and understand when you listen to my conversation with Gerald Waters. Now, he will tell you, and he's absolutely right, it wasn't just him alone. But he became the focal point of this effort for change. It has made the kind of change that is helping there. And I know that you can also make a difference where you're at. And so my call to action in this situation really is, is that you can make a difference in your home, in your community, with your family, your friends. You'll hear with Gerald just how he had to go about and what he has done to really understand the problem. And you'll hear what has happened to some extent. It's an inspiring story. So let's go ahead and transition over to my conversation with Gerald. I am thrilled right now to be here with, I say be here with uh, Gerald Waters. He's right now in New Zealand, as I'm here in the States. And Gerald and I met a few years back. And what is fantastic about him is he has become one of New Zealand's leading advocates for alternative measures for responding to drug and alcohol-related offenses. 2010, Gerald committed himself to learning more about road safety and drink driving, which is what they call it in New Zealand. And we'll talk a little bit more about why and what he did. But suffice it to say that his work in this area has resulted in an, resulted in an invitation to present at the International Interlock Symposium in the United States in 2011, and that's where we met. Where at that time, he was also presented with the inaugural Barry Sweetley Award. And giving Mr. Waters the award, the Traffic Injury Research Foundation praised his unwavering drive for knowledge on and understanding of the issue of impaired driving, promotion of evidence-based solutions such as alcohol interlocks, and his pursuit of change in the justice system. And just recently, he just got back from the International Council on Alcohol, Drugs, and Traffic Safety Conference held in Australia, where he was recognized with the Robert Borkenstein Award, a huge honor to give that. And that award focuses also on outstanding contributions through service in the area of alcohol, drugs, in relation to traffic and transportation safety. I think if you ask him, and I've, I've seen this down, written down as well, he would just describe himself as an average guy with a family living in New Zealand who has experienced firsthand the devastating effect of when an offender fails to have his or her alcohol the drug issue addressed in a meaningfully way. Gerald, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Hi, David. Good to speak to you. And what I thought we'd chat about for a little bit is, of course, to start off, we'll talk a little bit about what happened. Why, why did you become such a strong advocate? And then from there... What have you been doing? And, and I'll say what's in the future for as well. So if you can share with us a little bit, what, why did you become such an advocate for drink driving issues? Yeah, um, as you mentioned, back in uh, 2010, one night, me and my girlfriend, um, after putting our baby to bed, and, uh, and she was pregnant with our daughter, um, we were trying hard all night to avoid the phone calls and the text messages, <laughs> just sure. have a little bit of uh, peace and quiet to ourselves. Um, and um, we started, we thought something was wrong when the phone was ringing incessantly and the mobile phones were beeping and beeping. So the next time the phone rang, my girlfriend picked up the phone. She screamed. She collapsed to the floor. Um, I rushed over. I picked up the phone and I said, um, what is it? What is it? And the voice on the other end of the phone said, uh, Rin, Rin is dead. Catherine Rin, as we knew her, Kennedy, uh, mm -hmm. was my partner's best friend. 
and she'd um, visited us on many occasions since I'd moved to New Zealand. Uh, as you can tell, my accent isn't a Kiwi accent. I'm originally <laughs> from Wales in the UK. And, um, and yes, yeah, she'd been killed um, that morning after dropping her five-year-old son off to school. Just minutes after dropping him off to school, she'd been killed by a drink driver at around eight o'clock in the morning. Newspaper reports that we started seeing over the next couple of weeks informed us that this wasn't the first time that the drink driver had been uh, caught, you know, had done this, and he'd been caught on 17 previous occasions. Um, after a couple of months, we ended up in court and attended the court session, and then the judge informed us that uh, he had only been out of jail for 10 days yeah. um, before he killed our friend, Rin, um, and he'd been in jail on that occasion for drink driving. Um, oh, honestly, it was only the it was only the thought that I I might affect the as yet unpronounced sentence that stopped me from leaping to my feet and shouting. And I can remember clearly wanting to do this, shouting, "This is madness! Absolute madness!" Yeah. Um, you know, because whilst I understood that while there are cars and and people are allowed to drink and drive, you know, there's inevitably going to be crashes, accidents and deaths, um, for somebody to have so many previous convictions and, you know, and still be allowed, as in my opinion, to, you know, come to this inevitable conclusion just seemed just beyond belief. And how many did you hear he had as far as at the time? He had 17 yeah. previous drink driving convictions. Um, you know, it was staggering. I just thought to myself, if, you know, if somebody's put themselves before the criminal justice system on so many previous occasions doing exactly the same thing and all we can do is imprison them and then as soon as they release they go back to that offending and the results you know are just awful my life changed i couldn't get i couldn't understand how this you know this could happen and so i started researching uh, drink driving in new zealand um, and I done a Google word search of drink driving and problems of drink driving, and it led me to a meeting with a gentleman, um, a, a Roger Brookin. He ran a drink driving interventions trust in Wellington, which is the capital of New Zealand. Sure. Yeah. And he started telling me about the problems of drink driving and how a very low number of drink drivers are actually assessed for any alcohol or a drug problems. Um, I think the figure was as low as 5%. And, um, you know, then the research I got from the uh, Ministry of Transport and the New Zealand Transport Agency, you know, showed me that, you know, repeat drink drive offending was a very serious problem in New Zealand. There's a third of the, around a third of the offenders caught had a previous um, conviction. And around a third of the offenders involved in the fatal crashes had previous convictions also. So it's a significant uh, problem in New Zealand as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, I, I just could not believe that, you know, that I, I started researching, you know, and looking at, well, so what, what, what exactly is going on? And that's what it was. It was just um, license disqualification, eventually leading to prison. Um, there was a lot of um, drink drivers then found driving unlicensed. 
Sure. Um, so, they, you know, you had that, you know, that seemed to be actually creating a problem, creating a bigger problem. These people then had to appear in court again, and uh, it just seemed to be going on and on and on. And um, the more I was looking, the more research I was getting, I just I couldn't understand why nobody was doing anything. I just, you know, I just couldn't understand why it wasn't somebody's job to be, you know, addressing this. Um, and... By sheer coincidence, that year, the New Zealand government were amending the Land Transport Act and the drink driving laws through an initiative called um, uh, Safer Journeys. And so they asked for public submissions um, regarding some of the changes they were looking at. And um, I prepared a research paper for the um, select committee. It's a committee that was um, looking at the public sub submissions and seeing what the public thought the problems were. But for my submission, I just, again, turned to Google word search and just typed in drink driving experts worldwide, um, which led me then to um, meet, you know, having emails with various groups, including the Traffic Injury Research Foundation, sure. the Pacific Institute of Research and Evaluation, uh, on interlocks, because interlocks, I started looking, you know, I found out information about technologies available, and to me it seemed interlocks were, you know, whilst I understood they just wouldn't stop everybody, and they couldn't stop everybody, they seemed to be working really well. I spoke to um, Richard Roth from New Mexico. Sure. He'd been, you know, he'd had... Um, masses of information on the effectiveness of alcohol ignition interlocks. So just for everybody to I'm know, so, uh, Gerald, just so everybody else knows, Richard Roth is one of the leading experts on ignition interlocks and has written extensively on that. Yes. And, you know, I, 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 the, the international community, I explained what I was doing, I explained why I was doing it, and they just, you know, freely and openly just done everything they could to help me. I had offers of people, you know, they'd come to New Zealand, and um, if, they, you know, if I wanted them to, if I needed them to give evidence to the select committee orally, and uh, it was just phenomenal. The response I had from the international community was just absolutely, you know, and if, if somebody didn't know something, they'd give me the email address of somebody else, another professor, scientist, researcher. It was phenomenal. So the paper I prepared covered a range of topics such as alcohol ignition interlocks, um, rehabilitation, drink driver rehabilitation, mm -hmm. um, which I, I researched and found that um, could be used to positive effect. Also, um, there was um, a review of the sentences of drink drivers. I prepared a very detailed and thorough research paper. I also then um, made an oral submission to the select committee, um, and that was in uh, that was in 2010. Then, um, yeah, that was my first contact with you know the research that I was doing. Now, in that paper you wrote, is that the, the case for alcohol and other drug treatment courts in New Zealand? No, that was the second paper. That was the second paper, um, okay. The first paper was, um, it, it's, it's title isn't very uh, grandiose. <laughs> it's um, submission by Gerald Waters on behalf of the friends of uh, Catherine Kennedy to the select committee on um, the amendments to the Land Transport Act. So it's got a mouthful. Well, yeah, but, but um, you say it's not very grandiose, but, I mean, but it's obviously a much no. more important title than that one, so. Yeah, well, that's sort of obviously my, you know, this sparked off an interest for me then, particularly around the, the fact that the research suggested that only 5% of not just drink drivers, but all offenders involved in alcohol and other drug crime, only 5% are having any sort of form of assessment at initial contact to see if they had any alcohol or drug problems. 
So, you know, I, I, I just found it unbelievable. And, you know, that, the fact that nobody was in bed, what I, I started as well as that research, I started writing letters, my first letter, and, you know, it may appear flippant, on, um, <laughs> but it, it wasn't flippant. It was, you know, I just wanted to know. I wrote to the Minister of Transport and I said, what are the benefits of allowing people to drink and drive? I wanted to understand what, what the, you know, the stance sure. was from the government. What, what actually are the benefits of that? And, you know, and I had a letter back saying, you know, I, well, they understood my sentiment and blah, blah, blah. It was the fact that people have been, you know, and so, um, and the second letter I, I wrote was to the Minister of Justice. I said, whose job is it now to investigate the circumstances that have led to our friend's death? Because as far as I can see, this was preventable. You know, I, I believe this was, there was a preventable death. So there must be some mechanism for the government to start, you know, looking at the problem and why this occurred. Um, and take steps to change it, yeah. Yeah, and after, you know, I wrote, I had several responses, none to my satisfaction. I, I soon sort of realized that it was going to be, it was my job to do that. And so you, and, st- yeah, you started and, you started doing the papers and more letters, and uh, you actually well, had. I, I initially, you know, I gosh, you know, I'm not. This is not my job, you know. I, I, right. I came from a music background, and I was a musician, a music producer in London for many years, and this wasn't my. Fe- you know, I didn't even know what I was looking for, let alone what to ask for. You know, you'd have to make official information act requests, etc. And then one night, talking to a friend. We come up with, we said, well, why don't we just write? Because the, the guy that killed our friend, the maximum sentence at the time was five years for killing by what in New Zealand is called excess breath alcohol, EBA. Okay. Um, and he, had, he went to jail. So I thought, well, I'll just write to the guy and ask him to waive his privacy rights and allow me access to all of his personal information regarding the criminal justice system, regarding anything to do with um, alcohol or drug rehabilitation. These are very personal medical records. And I, I had help from the Department of uh, Corrections and Prison Services in drafting a letter. And so I wrote him that letter and, and he did. He waived his privacy rights. Were you surprised? No. No, I wasn't because, because when I went to court, like I come from an area that has got high unemployment, high levels of um, drug and alcohol problems in South Wales. And I'd seen this guy before. I'd seen this guy on many occasions walking on the streets of my village in, in Wales. And I, I knew this guy, you know, this guy probably didn't set out to, you know, well, he didn't set out to kill our friend. Right. And I just, it, you know, I, you know, I kind of thought that he wouldn't have done that. I would never have written. I just, I got the sense that he wouldn't. And so, um, he, you know, yeah, I, and I, I, there was no doubt in my mind. There was really, you know, I, I, I think this is the first time I've thought about that. I've not, I, nobody's ever asked me the question, did I think he would? People have asked me, do I know why? And I can't really answer that either, but no, I never doubted that he wouldn't. Um, and then <clears throat> weeks later, boxes and folders and no, numerous, numerous records from many sources that are appearing on my front door. This guy's record went back 25 years. 
And yeah. not only did he have 17 previous drink driving convictions, he, had, he also had a hundred other alcohol and uh, other drug-related crimes. And his rehabilitation efforts, is, he, had, he had a multitude of co-occurring problems and it started from a very young age. Um, I read all his psychological reports, I read everything and I started sharing this information bit by bit. Some of the information, you know, I had probation reports, sure. I had judges sentencing notes and in fact one of the sentencing notes from two years before he killed our friend, I, and I paraphrase this, but a judge had said the problems you've got mean that inevitably you were going to kill somebody and you were statistically overdue to do so. Um, if you were a violent offender or a sexual offender, I could impose some sort of preventive measure. But this isn't available to me here. There's nothing I can do to stop you. You know, that just seemed absolutely absurd. And I started sharing this information with the Ministry of Justice, the Minister of Justice. Little snippets that I was reading. This took me months to read through all this and compile, you know, and check things out. And I, you know, also then I started researching alcohol and other drug crime in New Zealand and levels of reoffending and what rehabilitative efforts were available and also what was being done in other countries to great effect or positive effect. And one of the things I found out about were drug courts, um, alcohol and other drug treatment courts. Oh, sure. This, again, through the network of experts had led me to emails with um, um, a retired um, Superior Court judge, Judge Peggy Hora, and she started sharing that information with me, and so I compiled all the information on problems in New Zealand and how drug courts work um, into a paper called The Case for Alcohol and Other Drug Treatment Courts in New Zealand. I sent a copy of this paper to the minister at the time, who's the Right Honourable Simon Power. Um, he asked, uh, could he meet with me? And I, said, I sort of obviously said yes. <laughs> you know, and, and so he came to my house. He came to my house and we had um, a meeting. Um, we talked about drug courts and, you know, the, the, um, the power they have to you know, affect some positive change in um, AOD offending and reoffending. When you say um, a, a range of other, when you say AOD, just so uh, everybody knows, it's alcohol or other uh, drugs. Alcohol or other drug, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, it, we also talked about other matters relating to the um, what my findings were. And he promised me. He said, "Look," he said, "you know, you've obviously researched this really well. You know, if the case seems compelling." He said, I'll get back to you. Um, I'll be dealing with this personally as a personal matter. A couple of months later, the government announced they'd be starting up two pilot alcohol and other drug courts in New Zealand in the capital, in, um, one of the largest cities, the second largest city, Auckland. Um, so that was, you know, that was astonishing. Well, and that's, um, that's such and, a, a fantastic achievement there, Gerald. And uh, it had to make you feel uh, like at least you're starting to accomplish something and, and you're making a difference and making some changes uh, in your, your, your new country, your, your home. And you were getting, you seem to be getting some of the, um, getting to the right people. Yeah, yes, exactly. And, you know, and also, you know, like, so after the first paper, the submission to the select committee and the information we provided on interlocks, very shortly after that, it was announced that New Zealand would be starting its first interlock program. And then the paper on drug courts, New Zealand announced that they would be starting um, the drug court program. And also in my first um, paper, I talked about rehabilitation, the need for rehabilitation. And this uh, led then 
to me doing another research paper on drink driver rehabilitation and in New Zealand and worldwide. This led then to a meeting with the Ministry of Health who, you know, said, look, we've just been found out that we've got a million dollars available now for funding for our programs for drink, specifically for drink drivers. So that, again, you know, that was just phenomenal that, you know, this was all happening. And the greater thing, I, I believe one of the greatest things was the fact that Rin's family could see that, you know, we were, we were having, the death wasn't needless. Yeah. This wasn't, this wasn't wasted. We, you know, we would, we, you know, were providing evidence and this had sparked off this research where it was having positive change. It was legislative change. Um, and, and, you know, I was given, at the time I was given, you know, TV, radio, um, newspaper interviews regularly. This was at the forefront of public opinion. And, and it continues to be, you know, I, I endeavor to keep it at the forefront of public opinion. Well, and I noticed that, you know, as you said, you've got we've gotten the uh, the two drug courts going now, and that's where you have happened to be there with you again, as far as for that conference to talk about that for the public and for the broader discussion. And yeah. change the laws, the interlock laws. Uh, you've got the funding now for some additional rehabilitation. I guess one of the things that strikes me, Gerald, is you know so many so many people when they lose such a dear friend. Uh, because of a drunk driver, their first almost reaction or thought is, you know, throw the book at the person, get rid of them. I don't want to deal with them again. And look, there was, there was and there was no difference here. Okay, that was the initial that was the initial reaction. The initial reaction was that, you know, it's this is that evil, terrible person. But I'm trying. I think I think it was when I went to court and I seen the guy and. Instead of it being newspaper reports, you know, and the newspaper reports are what they are, you know, they, they do what they do, they report in a fashion, they... But when you, when I seen the guy, yeah, it sort of, it struck me that, you know, this guy, this guy didn't set out to do this. There's, there's something more to this, you know, and, and it was only actually seeing the guy, you know, and looking into, there was, didn't appear to be, you know, anything there. Right. There was, how could there be remorse? How could there be, a, you know, there was, it appeared that this guy had bigger problems than, than on the surface, than, than he was just evil. That, could, that couldn't be a reason, you know, that couldn't be the reason. And I believe that's, yeah, that's what, that's what, that's what sparked me into the avenue of investigating. I needed to understand. I always need to understand everything I've ever done. I actually need to understand. There needs to be a rationale. I need to be, you know, clear in my brain that, you know, this was, in, you know, there was nothing anyone could have done. Because if there's something that somebody can do with them, you know, we're, as far as I'm concerned, in the community that I was brought up in, we're, we're ethically and morally obliged to do so, to do something. There's got to be, you know, we're capable of great things as, as you know, we're human beings. We, we can do anything, um, and we should, and collectively as well. It's in our best interests. That was the response, you know, and... Um, well, you but, c- yeah, initially, initially it was, angry. obviously, you go through those emotions of anger and confusion, as, as, as grief would, um, you know, you expect from grief. Well, you clearly have gone and tried to make a difference and make your community and, and your country a better, safer place to live. And through the research and through your advocacy and through your work you're doing, and as you asked, as we've said at the very beginning here, you're you're being recognized internationally as one of the leaders there of, of what you're doing. So I guess part of the question is now, 
Okay, you've got the new ignition lock law. You have the DWI courts or drug courts there now. Are you done? Is there more? What uh, what kind of things oh, do you gosh. think? Yeah, okay, go ahead. Um, well, you know, look, it's, it's, you open up one door, there are two doors behind that, you open both end doors, you peek through one, you see the fire room on, that needs to be pulled out. In, behind that fire, there's two doors, but you've got to go back into the other room to see what's in that. This, it just, everything you look at opens up another avenue. Um, when I got back, when I was in, when I met you, when I first met you in um, California, and we talked, um, particularly about, you know, the uh, cool collective approach mm-hmm. that you use in DWI court and drug courts. Um, and everybody I spoke with, you know, when they were saying, you know, once I was um, at the great honor of having been at the inaugural Barry Swedler Award bestowed upon me, it was just phenomenal. And I was told, I remember speaking to people from um, NHTSA, that's your National Highway Safety National Highway Traffic Safety Administration here in the yeah, States. And, yeah, and you know, they were saying, look, you know, you've, you're having a great effect here. And I met, also met Candice Leitner, the founder of Mothers Against Drink Driving. Yeah. And, you know, and I was in awe of her. I'd you know, already um, read all about Candice. Well, I already knew about Candice before the drink driving um, incident. I killed our friend, you know, because she's so famous. And, you know, she explained to me that I was having, a, you know, the work that I was doing was having a beneficial effect and it would have continued so I should maybe perhaps think about professionalizing that and doing that as you know as, as what I do and so on returning to New Zealand um, I spoke with a few people that had been supporting my work and because I was doing this in my spare time you know this was a gosh <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I'd come to New Zealand my partner um, wanted to return to work. We were living in London. We came to New Zealand to have our first child, so I was going to look after um, our son. We had stayed home dad for a couple of years till, um, for a bit, so I was doing that research in that time, and, oh, gosh, honestly, it was confusing. It was so much information. It was um, very difficult to sort of not read my son broad fatality <laughs> statistics at bedtime and ask of international experts you know, on, the, on the phone who's been eating my porridge. Um, it was very confusing, but um, I did have support from the local community, a local businessman that provided me with free printing and free websites and you know free stuff, and I had free legal advice from a lawyer friend. Um, and then when we got back, we realized that, um, yeah, and whilst people are calling me an advocate and a lobbyist and blah, 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 what I, what I realized was that actually all I'd ever done was provide research and information. And that research was, you know, evidence-based. And I'd, I'd never cherry-picked anything. If there was a flaw in something, I told about that. I didn't pretend that I knew anything. I just wanted to present information that may be of benefit and to help those who do make decisions make you know their job easier. And this, as it, in a talk I had with um, one of my supporters, he said, well, look, you know, what you're doing is totally in line with um, work that a charitable trust does, particularly around the area. You know, you've kept this information in the public domain. Everything created, I put online and made freely available um, for the general public because I believe it was in their interests to know this information. This was this affected them. Hundreds of people are dying on the roads every year. Absolutely. Thousands were getting injured. You know, this was people needed to know about this. If it, if this had been, you know, if you know, and in one of my talks I gave, I explained that you know, if if a hundred New Zealanders were dying 
in another country, we'd, we'd, we'd be up in arms. We'd be, you know, we'd do everything we can to get them out. We'd, you know, we'd, we wouldn't let them travel to that country. There'd be international uproars. But this was happening on a daily basis. And so I wanted the public, you know, I really wanted the public to understand what the, the depth of the problem was. It wasn't just somebody was killed again or that's that. There are things we can do to look after ourselves. And we can't leave it to other people, you know, the police and the government. We, we can do this. You know, we just need to be aware. And just the fact that we were aware is a very powerful thing. And so we formed a charitable trust. Um, we call the Trust Researching Impaired Driving in New Zealand. And you, and have, a, you have a website for that trust as well, correct? Yeah, um, it's um, www.ridnz.org.nz. And it just explains the problems in New Zealand on the website. There's, you know, I've, since the website's been up and running, um, that was another thing I had to learn. I had to learn how to build a website <laughs> to start. Because everything I've done, you know, I, I haven't got a secretary. I, I've got the grand, I have got the grandiose title of research director of the trust. <laughs> but I'm actually also the tea boy, um, the secretary, the admin, um, the everything. It's just me. And, you know, shot, you know, I started having um, emails from people asking how could, you know, my, my, my mother is, you know, drink driving and I've got problems and uh, my, I've got problems, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's, gosh. Um, so I, you know, I started collaborating and I'm forming collaborations with stakeholders that I've identified over the previous two years. I'm putting information on the website for people, you know, if they've got drinking problems, there's places they can go, people they can talk to, etc. So the website became quite a hub, um, particularly because, you know, the, the information I was providing, it was all sure. available. Sure. I didn't, you know, have to dig deep for this information. It was all these records were publicly available. No, nobody was making them available, so... Well, you, as you said, and, you made it a central hub, so it made it very easy, made it even easier for people to find now. Yeah, absolutely. All the information that I'd had, even before publishing it on the website, I checked it out. I worked with the government. I worked with all the government departments, you know, and they were equally as concerned as me. There was no, you know, there was no, you know, we don't want to know. There's, the government in New Zealand were really concerned. And, you know, and the fact that, you know, so much legislative change has occurred over the last three years very quickly, you know, it actually, you know, confirms that. Yeah. And so I, all the information I had, I was sharing with them. At the time, the um, Ministry of Transport, because we had a massive earthquake here in New Zealand in Christchurch. Oh, sure, sure. At, yeah, and uh, the Minister of Transport was given a portfolio called the Earthquake Portfolio to look after that. So he gave um, the road safety part of his portfolio to his associate minister. Um, and I was having discussions with him. He, I, I met with him and he said, well, look, you know, let's have the public launch of your charitable trust at Parliament. I'll host it. And that was a wonderful thing, Do you know, that was absolutely phenomenal. Um, all the stakeholders I'd been working with attended, and we had a really big public launch um, of the trust with the backing of the Ministry of Transport. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And, you know, to, and I've, I, to this day, I continue to work with the government and share my information with them. You know, this, this is not about blame. The, the blame game is over. Forget the blame. You know, we're not talking. Blame is meaningless. It's right. all about solutions. Um, looking at you know possible solutions and finding out the depth of the problem. While the question was the death of our friend preventable, it does still remain unanswered. It is hoped that all this research work and the publicity that has ensued from the question uh, may help uh, prevent further deaths, injuries, 
and crashes from substance impaired driving in New Zealand. Well, Gerald, that's uh, sitting here and I'm just, uh, you know, and I knew most of this, but still just hearing it from you, because obviously we've talked before and the impact and the difference you have made from day one until now and still going is just amazing. I mean, you are an inspiration, sir. You're an inspiration. You, I say this in all seriousness. You're an inspiration to all of us of what is possible when we really want to make a difference, when we really want to change things and bring about a better way for most people around us. And I think that's a yeah. phenomenal statement. And the award you just received from the Borkestein, from uh, the conference in Brisbane is clearly appropriate and well-deserved uh, because you have been doing that work. You have been making that difference. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> so um, you, you, have, you have your website, the, the RIDNZ it's like you said, dot, dot com, dot NZ. And, uh, org, I thank you. And uh, I think you actually have another website, too, I believe I came across. A drug Courts website, is that yours as well? Oh, yeah, that's the, um, I, that's the, um, the paper that I wrote for the Drug Courts. Um, I made a separate site for the Drug Courts case because it was the alcohol and drug offending of all crime. So, yeah, I made that, I put that paper on a different website, um, and that was, yeah, the Drug Courts um, website. If you just type, type my name, it was drugcourts.co.nz, um, and that, that paper deals with all crime, all alcohol and drug-related crime, and why this needs to be addressed in, um, in what I'm calling a whole-of-government approach involving all those ministries and departments and stakeholders. I, you know, the work that I've been doing has had great effect, but I must, you know, I must um, acknowledge all the people that I've worked with, all the stakeholders, especially in New Zealand, who, you know, they've been working, they've been drink driver rehabilitation people, AOD people, courts, judges, um, people working in the, the government in the various departments and ministries. These are all people have been working, but separately. Yeah. You know, they've all been doing fantastic work. I've just, I've sort of become a hub, sort of a conduit, a catalyst for all that information to come together. Um, so I must acknowledge those people. I haven't been doing this alone, you know. These, there's been a, a wealth of people. They've reported to me have felt that they've been working alone and in the dark. So, you know, I must acknowledge those people. It's very important and an important part of my job is to do that. Well, and I think also that I just also goes to show, while they think they've been working in the dark, you actually became the light to bring things to a forefront and really uh, make a difference. Yeah, and, you know, like I say, for, for the family, you know, these outcomes, these outcomes are great. You know, this, this, is, this is a... Something good out of something so terrible, um, and this is this is what we feel is the appropriate response. Well, this has been great. Well, what I to let you everybody know, uh, Gerald, uh, on my sh I have my website highwaytosafety.com, and on there I will list your websites and the documents that you've cited, the papers you've written, so that if anyone wants to find them, and they can go to your website and get more information about what you've been doing, and they can contact you on your website, correct? That's correct, yes. So I think that way then we'll make sure that they have easy access to get to uh, any more information that you have available so that as you continue to be that hub and continue to expand your, your horizons and push forward, they'll be able to find and get to you and and help out or just provide information as well. Yeah, look, absolutely, because 
collaboration is the way forward and the spreading and sharing of that information is very important. Well, sir, again, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, join me here. This has been a fantastic discussion, I believe, of really showing that someone can make a difference. And it took, as you said, collaboration, uh, but there was a spark plug to get things going. And now you have a country that has stepped up to say, we're not taking this anymore. We want change. And I think that's yeah, phenomenal. And, yeah, and look, the fantastic news is that, um, you know, since we've been doing this research, the uh, fatalities from traffic injuries in New Zealand has been reduced and is reducing, you know, which is, you know, whilst I, I make no direct correlation between the work that the Trust has been doing and the ensuing publicity, but we do hope that, you know, what we've been doing has helped and you know added that decrease, and we hope it will continue to do so. Absolutely. Well, the awareness you're raising, at the very least, is getting the discussion going and people talking about it and being alert to what can they do to make a change and not to uh, harm anybody around them as well. I think. Yeah, and that engagement, you know, that process of engagement, as you're not telling people what to do. You know, gosh, we, I, I sort of feel we live enough in a nanny state as it is. You know, it's been told what to do and what not to do. It's just engaging people to think. Yep, that is important. It's engaging people to think and think for themselves and providing information for them to think about. And clearly, you've been doing that, sir. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it, and this has been a, a great discussion. I believe of what is possible. Thank you so much, Gerald. Well, there it is. And as you heard, Gerald has become an inspiration. He sort of, I wasn't sure about that when I mentioned it to him, but I don't think there's any doubt there. There's no question of how far he has come in making a difference to those that live in New Zealand. There's a quote out there that many of us have heard, and it goes along the lines of this, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. That was Margaret Mead who said that. Gerald decided it was time. He decided it was time to say, what we've been doing is madness. What's going on here? We need to change this. And he started talking about it. And as you heard, the others came out and said that they felt alone, that they were in the dark because there was no one else out there. And he became that focal point, that became the focus, the hub, the light for making a difference. And this coalition now has been built. And that has been moving forward. It takes perseverance, it takes determination, but it happens. And one of the ways that he was able to move it forward and get the discussion going was he presented his information. He presented what he had two ways. And this is always important for any message. He presented it with his heart because of the loss he suffered, and he presented it with his head, using the research, using evidence-based research. What that means is that there's research, it's not just his opinion on what he thinks will work, it's what the research says. That speaks volumes when you're trying to convey a message of change. Now, here's what we know works. Why aren't we doing it? And so when you're going out and conveying that message, talking from the heart and the head can make all that difference. Now, talking from the heart does not have to mean that you have to suffer a loss. It's actually very sad that many times so many people need to have to suffer that loss before they become proactive, before they become determined to make a difference. It's a recognition from us that these things happen, and that caring about it, being compassionate about it, to make a difference. So I'm calling upon you now to see what you can do to bring about that change. And I can hear it there as, well, David, I'm only one person here. I, I, I can't do that. I just, it's just me. Gerald was just one person. 
and then you build a coalition. But many times change does not have to be that big a dramatic effort. Change starts with ourselves. Change starts with who we are and how do we act. Do we put our seatbelts on every time? Do we put our phone down and not use it while driving? Do we not drink and drive? There are so many little things that we can do individually. And then it's taking that knowledge, that awareness, that understanding, and going and talking to your family, your parents, your children, your partner, whoever it is, and letting them understand why this is important. Let them understand that you want them to make it home safe, and their actions are critically important in that process. And after that, talking to your friends about this whole area, this whole topic of road safety, this global road safety and decade of action for road safety is something that we all have to take part in. It's something that we all have to address if it's going to get better. But it all starts with ourselves. It all starts within us. And what changes are we implementing to make a difference? And then going out and being that active voice of compassion and education with your family and your friends and community leaders. We can all be an inspiration. We can all be leaders in our communities and sharing this message that lives everywhere are worth fighting for. We can all make a difference and save lives and make our communities a safer place to live. It's that message I would ask you to take away from this whole episode. You've heard the story of inspiration and you can be that inspiration as well to your family, to your friends, to your community. It doesn't have to be the grandiose idea It's us making a difference for us. Thank you for dropping into this episode. You've been listening to the Highway to Safety podcast. Please make sure to head over to my website at highwaytosafety.com and check out the show notes and any of the links that I discussed with Gerald. To go to the actual episode, you can go to highwaytosafety.com slash zero three and feel free to leave any comments or questions or to send me a message. You can do that there as well. If you want to read my blog on other traffic safety topics, you can find that at trafficsafetyguide.com, along with video clips and additional links in this whole area. I hope you found this episode useful and informative. As I've said, this whole podcast is about providing you the knowledge and raising awareness and giving you the tools to be a safer driver. My name is David Wallace, the Traffic Safety Guy, and I'm here to help you stay on the road to be a safer you. Have a great day.